Welcome back. This week, I'm joined by activist, writer and broadcaster Natasha Devon. I really enjoyed talking to Natasha about the work that she does to support people with mental health issues, to normalise the conversation around mental health. And we also discussed the differences between tools that support mental health versus mental well-being and how often we use those words interchangeably but they're not the same thing so that was really interesting for me to discuss that with her I'd never really considered it in that way before so each week as the host I get the opportunity to learn I'm always learning so much from this show so let's dive in I really hope you enjoy this conversation with Natasha Devon welcome to the power hour I'm Adrienne Herbert wellness coach international speaker and author Each week, I speak to a variety of guests, from business founders to Olympic athletes, leading coaches, changemakers and innovators, to find out their daily habits, their rules to live by and what motivates them to get up out of bed each day. Personally, I am on a mission to encourage, motivate and inspire, so I hope that the Power Hour will help you to achieve your personal and professional goals. Natasha, welcome back to the podcast. How are you? I'm really well, thank you. Great. I mean, three years since you were last on the show. So firstly, welcome back. Thank you for being a guest yet again. You were one of my first guests, I think probably in the first 10 episodes, I reached out to you. We'd never met. The podcast didn't even exist. And I pitched to you what I wanted to talk about and what the Power Hour was all about. And you kindly said yes. You came to Shoreditch when we were recording in in Shoreditch. We did the episode and I'll forever be grateful. So thank you so much. And since then, you I've just seen you fly. Like when I go into work, into LBC on a Saturday and go up the escalator at Leicester Square, there's a poster. I'm like, there's Adrienne. When I switch on my TV and it, there's the homepage for Sky, there's a little thumbnail. Oh, there's Adrienne. You're everywhere. You cannot escape me. I'm very sorry about that. <laughs> no, it's, it's wonderful to see. It's been, yeah, we've been busy and... You know, in our first conversation way back then, three years ago, you know, you do so much brilliant work about mental health, obviously your area of expertise. And in that previous conversation, you know, this is before the pandemic, before this this mad world that we're living in at the moment. But we talked in that conversation about how physical and mental health are so interlinked and that actually it's impossible to separate the two. We talked about the stigma attached to mental health. And at the time, especially we were talking about how difficult it is for men to talk about mental health and and, and suicide rates. And this was, as I said, three years ago. So I think where I'd love to start this conversation today is with you to kind of understand from then until now, like flipping back in the last few years, the wider conversation about mental health, how, if it has, how has it changed? It's a really interesting question because I feel like if there is one tiny silver lining to everything that we've all been through in in the past couple of years, it's that mental health has become more universalized. And and this is something that I always said, you know, one in four people each year experiences a diagnosable mental health issue, but four in four people have got a head with a brain in it, which means we all have a status of mental health. And I think people started to realize almost like the coat pegs that they were hanging their mental health on, their walk to the station in the morning, um, talking to the the person behind the counter in the coffee shop, um, going into work and having a a routine sort of baked into their working day. 
these things are actually really crucial to our ongoing well-being. And um, what I would say is, and, and again, this is something that I've been saying for a while, we need to start being more specific when we talk about mental health because it's being used in so many different ways that sometimes the conversations we're having are happening at cross purposes. And so I, I would like to see people being a little bit more specific. The other thing that um, I noticed and actually my campaign, the Mental Health Media Charter, we, we actually did a, um, a campaign around this, was that uh, backbench conservative MPs, because uh, I don't know if you uh, know about this, but the, the only reason really that Boris Johnson is prime minister is that there is this kind of cabal of really libertarian Brexity backbench MPs who are the ones that are uh, responsible for the, the red wall turning blue, uh, essentially. Mm. And um, they they went in really hard with the we should not be in lockdown there should be no restrictions and they kept saying because of people's mental health and they kept positioning it as it was as straightforward as mental health versus physical health and that you couldn't sacrifice mental health at the at the altar of people um not dying by locking down and um first of all that that's a massive oversimplification because obviously people around you getting ill and dying has a massive impact mm-hmm. on on your mental health as well and young people don't exist in a silo you know they are cared for by people who are older than them um, mm-hmm. but also i felt that what was happening was people who had never voted for more money to be put into mental health services or never engaged with this topic ever before in their careers were suddenly using the community's struggles for their political agenda. Mm-hmm. So I actually um, got together a lot of people who are very prominent in this field, whether that's in charity or, or campaigning, to say can you stop taking our name in vain? We suffer with mental health issues and yes, lockdown isn't necessarily helping, but we understand that this is a sacrifice that we have to make and we would actually rather do it right and get it done and try and kind of not prolong this agony, if you see what I mean. Yeah, and it's really, you know, it's really interesting that you mentioned being specific and the kind of interchangeable words, I guess, that people use and probably myself included, you know, when we talk about well-being or when we talk about physical and mental health, as you stated, it's very different to mental health issues and someone who struggles with, for example, anxiety, depression, bipolar, these are disorders, they're things that are, they're not just, as you mentioned, people just commonly flip around the word, oh, mental health, or oh, feeling anxious, or oh, feeling stressed, as if they're kind of the same thing. And of course, you know, the mind, our mood, our, these things are interlinked, but they're not the same. And I think maybe that is, yeah, it's a difficult one. I'm thinking about it now as you're saying that, because the conversation being broader, and more people being honest and open and saying, Let's talk about well-being. Let's talk about mental health and support people through this time of a pandemic of isolation, working from home, maybe loss of income, loss of friends, family, community, all of these things. Of course, they're going to impact both our well-being and our mental health. But I hadn't actually thought about, yeah, the guess how how damaging it is really to just blend them into one. Yeah. And and again, this is a slight oversimplification. Diagnosable mental health issues is one strand. And that's something that meets a criteria that your doctor could diagnose you. So the the kinds of things that you mentioned, anxiety disorders, clinical depression, bipolar disorder, eating disorders. Then um, on the other side, you've got well-being. Um, So that's more preventative 
stuff, things that we should all be doing to kind of monitor and nurture our mental health. And that conversation has been hijacked slightly by the kind of, I want to sell you a vegan candle on Instagram brigade. But um, it's, you know, nonetheless, it's, it's something that people are talking about a lot more. And then you've got this middle section. And actually, this is very much where my work is concentrated in schools. And it's things that are mental health issues, but they're not diagnosable. So they can have a really profound impact on your ability to function and on your behavior, but they're not something that your doctor would diagnose. So that's stuff like um, stress, uh, body image insecurity, social media addiction, um, friendship difficulties. We've been having lots of discussions in schools at the moment about identity. You know, how does our class, our race, our gender, our sexuality intersect with our mental health? And it's not that any of those strands is is any more or less important than any of the others. It's just important to be clear which one we're in, you know, when we're having the discussion. Yeah, and, you know, I guess well-being, and that's certainly something that, you know, that's my arena, that's my area. And over the last year or two, you know, I've been working with organisations, I've been working with um, companies that employ a lot of people to really talk to them, you know, through workshops, through through events about their employee well-being. So that's, you know, everything that I do from, you know, how can you optimise your energy when you're working from home so that you can avoid, you know, burnout and stress or so that you can not avoid stress because I don't think that's possible, but manage stress and everything from, you know, exercise to sleep to you mentioned people who've lost their commutes, you know, getting outside every day in the morning, getting fresh air, you know, communicating with people, having a sense of structure and purpose. And all of those things I really do believe are incredibly important for people who for you know a long time now have woken up in one place, opened their laptop, done work in one place, worked out in that place, cooked in that place, homeschooled in that place, everything in one space it's not good for our well-being and so that's definitely my arena but where I think this is really interesting and what I would love to talk to you about is that yes it's great that employers are saying yes we've got to take care of our employees well-being and we want to do these sessions and we want to make sure they know it's important however what I'm seeing when I speak to individuals one-to-one people who actually work for these companies people who are leading teams you know friends peers they're telling me that the reality in the day-to-day is that people are still afraid to say if they are struggling with a mental health issue. So if it's debilitating, if it's preventing them from living their life and doing their work and wanting to get up and out every day, they still feel like, actually, I can't tell my manager that or I can't tell my boss that or when they give me loads and loads of work to do that I'm going to have to spend the entire weekend doing to be ready for Monday, I don't feel like I can say... I've got too much on, I don't, I can't take it on because, well, are they going to say, oh, this person in my team is, you know, they're they're suffering with mental health and therefore they're going to need time off or therefore they're going to be unreliable or therefore they're emotional or these labels and these words, which of course are wrong, but people are telling me, you know, the reality, that's what they're telling me. They're like, I would not go and say to my manager, I am feeling overwhelmed or anxious or burnt out, I need time off in fear that actually I would lose my job. Or, or I won't be able, they won't be able to necessarily sack me, but they will no longer give me responsibility. I won't get career progression. It's going to hold me back. So it's a huge topic, but I think one that a lot of people probably, you know, if they are struggling with mental health issues, really need to, to hear. So yeah, over to you, Natasha. What, what needs to happen there? 
Well, I think with a lot of these things, what you're challenging is a really core belief that people have absorbed almost through osmosis from the the nature of the society that we live in. And it starts really early because, um, in fact, I wrote a book that that came out in in 2020 called um, Yes, You Can Ace Your Exams Without Losing Your Mind. Wrote a book about exams in the year when exams were cancelled. Only I could do that. But um, the reason that I wrote it was because so many of the young people that I was talking to had bought into this idea that it was a binary choice between their academic performance and their mental health. And they would say things to me like, yes, I'm stressed, but it's good that I'm stressed because it means that I'm working hard. Or no, I'm not really getting as much sleep as I know I'm supposed to get, but those extra hours I'm revising. And what the evidence shows is that our academic performance or our performance at work and our mental health have a symbiotic relationship. And what that means is if you're very invested in and passionate about your work, that has a positive impact on your mental health. Because when we do things that we're passionate about, that that releases endorphins, which is great for our chemical balance. But if you are also finding ways to manage stress, not avoiding stress, as you say, because that's not possible, but finding ways to manage it, keeping your your levels of stress so that you're not um, then it's not shrinking your synapses, which is what happens when we're very, very stressed. Um, And if you are um, if you have good levels of well-being, that also optimizes your ability to retain information, make decisions, problem solve and think creatively, because ultimately it is all your brain. And I think this is something that hasn't quite sunk in yet, particularly with employers, that it's not a case of, oh, if, if I give resources to my employees, which is going to help them with their mental health, that means that they're not coping with their work or it's take or it's taking away or detracting from our performance in some way. It's if I support my employees with their mental health, which is something that I should be offering to every single one of my employees, regardless of if they've made a disclosure or not, that will also have a positive impact on my bottom line. Um, and so that's kind of the, the message that I'm I'm trying to get across, you know, because I also have this workplace campaign called Where's Your Head At, which is is looking at mental health in the workplace. And I think that there is a reticence from a lot of employers to even have the conversation because they think that they're going to be overwhelmed with disclosures and that that's going to cost them something. Mm. And there might be an initial outlay, but in the long term, this is going to be a good thing for productivity. Yeah, and I definitely can, you know, attest to that from, I guess, anecdotally on a personal level. As someone who, yeah, I take on a lot of challenges, I take on a lot of work, I'm someone who, you know, I want to say yes. Yes is usually the first thing that comes out of my mouth. Yes, sure, (laughs) I'll do that. And then I think, you know, I'm learning probably the hard way, uh, especially after the last two years, that as just as you described, it is you only have one brain. And so whether you're putting that towards work or, you know, thinking, problem solving, communicating, being on, presenting, talking, whatever it is, it's all coming from one place. And so that you don't have an even I, you know, some people might be surprised to hear, but you don't have an infinite amount of energy. And so I think for people who are yeah, listening to this, who are like, OK, yeah, that's me. You know, I, I am kind of you know, working a lot, taking on a lot, and I do need support with my mental health. Is there, you know, a way in which you would suggest they can go about speaking to their employee? Because, you know, we're going to talk about difficult conversations, something I know you've written about. It shouldn't be a difficult conversation, but for a lot of people, I think it is, you know, to start that conversation. So what advice would you give to them? My favourite question for 
to, to ask yourself, but also to ask someone else if, if they're struggling with their mental health is what would you like to happen? Um, because I think it what it does is it starts you thinking potentially about what are what resources do I have available to me and what would um, a, a more conducive, I guess, structure to my day look like that's going to to help me to to conquer this challenge that I have mm. in front of me. So it might be, for example, um, I had a friend who uh, went on antidepressants and the antidepressants really helped them with their mood, but it meant that they found it really difficult to get up in the morning and then they were buzzing at night. So they also found it really difficult to get to sleep. So they went to their employer and said, can I start two hours later and finish two hours later you won't lose anything but it just means that my working day is is um fits in with my natural rhythms a little bit more and I'm going to be more productive so this is of benefit to you and I think that's the way to have the conversation is to think in advance what would I like to happen what's going to help me and then go to your employer with can we do this um because that 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 way you're not just giving them a problem you're not saying look there's a problem you sort it out you're saying I've thought about a way around this and here's how we can work on it together yeah yeah I really like that going with solutions that's that's great advice and so I mentioned difficult conversations so not necessarily just employers and employees this can be relationships this could be uh, mothers it could be friends it could be anybody who we have to communicate with Difficult conversations is something that, oh my gosh, Natasha, I feel like we could do a whole hour talking about (laughs) why it is so hard for us to say or to ask for what we want. And more importantly, to ask for what we need. If we know it, why is it so difficult to yeah communicate to other people? Not just, they might not even be in a position of authority, but why do we just find that so hard and how can we get better at it? Help us. I think the reason that we find it so hard is because it's difficult in a lot of the the relationships that we have to show true vulnerability. And um, I think there's the fear of what might happen or or what the response might be. But I find generally if you go to somebody and you say, this is what I need from you, would you mind if we tried this? I mean, there are very few people who would say no in that situation. And particularly in our kind of uh, our very close relationships with with family and with friends, we often think that we're doing a really good job of hiding the fact that we're struggling. But often the people around us know they just don't know how to help. And it's really good to be able to to give them something to sink their teeth into, you know, to say this is how you can be of, of assistance to me. I think, um, you know, I, the piece that I wrote that you, you referred to in Grazia about difficult conversations, that was more about the fact that in the age of social media we're all operating on our own tailored set of facts and that means that a person's a person who you are really close to has a completely different window on the world to the one that you have and that can make it really difficult to communicate and connect 
And so it was the things I've learned from from working on LBC for for more than a year now. Um, you know, I'd been so used to being cocooned in the world. You know, I work in education and media, two more lefty professions you will not find. And then obviously on my social media, you know, we're all in an echo chamber. So I wasn't really used to having my ideas properly challenged. And on LBC, anybody can pick up the phone and call in and speak to you. Oh, and yes. it was, and it was, kind of, yeah. So it, it, indeed, it was. It was what I'd learned from uh, having people ring in who I thought, how have you even got there? You know, and the the uh, really key questions you can ask. And I found the power of saying to somebody, that's interesting. What, where, where did you pick up that idea? Or where did you get that from? Or, or talk me through how you got there. Sometimes they don't even know. They just saw it somewhere and it confirmed a, a pre-existing bias that they had. And so they've been sort of almost carrying it around like armor, <laughs> you know. Um, mm. But it's, yeah, it's, it's been an experience. It's been a ride. <laughs> the yeah, past year of it. <laughs> Gosh, well, there's two things there because one, I think, yeah, though those fo- those call in, you know. They, I mean, you must. I don't even know how you. You just must never know what's coming. But I think. Adam Grant talks a lot about thoughtful disagreement and how you don't necessarily have to go into things as it's going to be a debate. You know, this difficult conversation doesn't have to be I'm going to go in armed with the points, the facts and win over the opposition and win them, you know, talk them down or kind of, yeah, argue the, the, the point. But you can have thoughtful disagreement where you can say, okay, I don't know where you're coming from, I don't agree, but as you described, asking questions as opposed to kind of just hitting them with more information and saying, let's have a thoughtful disagreement let's discuss it let me actually listen hopefully they're going to do the same they're going to listen to you and so I think you know hopefully that is something that I think yeah you said with social media and with things can be just one way you know if you're just putting out things tweets comments posts whatever it can be quite one way so maybe we're losing that ability to have the feedback and the two-way conversation well, we've become so polarised as well, I think. Um, and th- there's a lot of evidence around this that we we will tend to take a more extreme position on social media than we would if we were having that conversation face to face. But I think it's because there's really not that much room for nuance. I mean, particularly on Twitter, which it is just a skip fire. I mean, it's just, I mean, it's not the place to go if you're if you're struggling with anxiety in even a, a small way. It's so shouty. But no opinion worth having can be adequately summarized in 280 characters it's just not possible so you get that just a a really brief summation of what could actually be a a really nuanced thought process that a person has gone through and you don't know the inflections they're using when when they're they're saying it you don't know how they arrived at that position all you see is those 280 characters and a lot of the time that presses a button in, in you so you want to come back at them and it's it's a very hostile incredibly hostile space and I and I think the fact that um, we're so used to having those types of arguments it means that we retreat further and further into the comfort of our silos and and that's part of how that kind of polarization process happens Mm, yeah this tribalism this kind of stick with the people that are that agree with you and how dangerous Mm. that is so I'm still on this difficult conversation. So There's one more, I guess, kind of like real life example that I'd love to talk to you about. Mm. And I was listening to a therapist, actually, a therapist podcast. And she was saying how it was around the new year. And I think maybe maybe even the, the holiday time and having conversations with people in our lives, whether it's, you know, a sister or a mum or a dad. And, and it was talking about the fact that 
we might have, uh, let's do, like I said, a real life example, going to visit parents who you know maybe are going to say things or, or ask you questions that you don't want to talk about. So pick a topic, any topic. It could be, why are you single? Or you have you look great, you've lost weight. Or mm. have you gained weight? Or these things which, or even actually bigger conversations about about race, about identity, these kind of things that are so important. And yet the people that love us the most and that that we love we love them too it can be really really hard and sometimes we have this idea in our mind which is like okay this is how the conversation is going to go yes I can have all the practice of boundaries and this and that I talked about this the other day actually saying you know prepare what you want to say and you go in and you prepare what you want to say and the first thing they say is oh you're too sensitive or oh you're being ridiculous and they kind of just disregard what you've said when you've gone in like I said for this difficult conversation you've prepared yourself okay I'm gonna say you know what mum I don't want to talk about this thing with you because when you say that it makes me feel like this or I would appreciate if when I talk about my work or about being single or about whatever the topic is I would really appreciate it if you didn't x y and z please can you respect that and they come back with oh you're too sensitive or oh you're you know you're being ridiculous or whatever and it just belittles you and you feel and in the moment often people feel like there's nowhere for them to go from there in that conversation so again difficult conversations I really think a lot of people struggle with this stuff and with communicating so yeah how can we I guess start to yeah bridge that gap with someone who we do love and care about we don't just want to you know a twitter you could say you know i'm going to ignore that person whereas if Mm. it's your own mum you're like oh but i actually love my (laughs) mum yeah it's interesting because i find a lot of a lot of the people who say you're being oversensitive are also the ones who are hypersensitive when they feel that that situation has happened in reverse so i find it can be helpful to kind of turn it around and say uh, you know if if because I think some people are so used to aspects of their identity just not being an issue because they're considered to be the default or the norm that they have never experienced what it's like to constantly have that bruise poked um Mm. and so they they just have no concept of what that might look like if if they were if they were a different person so I, I I find that to be quite a useful technique yeah yeah it sounds very useful and also I think you know it's not about obviously in the moment sometimes we can be kind of shocked and think oh my gosh how can you think like that but actually I think having I guess like I said thoughtful disagreement and I guess compassion for that person and thinking do they really fully understand you know is it an opportunity for you to not educate them in a patronizing way but open a conversation and a discussion with them and hopefully you know they can learn something you can you know be a little bit uh give a little bit of flex and and when I use the word compassion I also you know brings me on to my my next question for you Natasha which is about self-compassion now of course with the work that you do you know around mental health and self-compassion being so so important and understanding and I guess our expectations of ourselves and our like daily output I think it is now that's probably how I'd describe it anyway and I'm someone who I'll be honest I do not think well self-compassion is not a strength of mine and actually this is probably not a very nice thing to admit but I just think compassion and empathy in general like everyone's got different you know strengths and weaknesses and we score highly on some things and low on others and I probably think I probably score quite low on empathy and compassion and that's not to say I don't care about people's (laughs) feelings but I think I've I honestly think I was brought up with quite a 
just get on with it you know you know mm. what don't whinge and moan just get on with it you're yeah don't make a fuss kind of thing so the idea to me of self-compassion sometimes when I listen to people talk about it and I'm like okay you know listen this is self-compassion I find myself thinking oh but Adrienne are you just are you just I don't know being a bit lazy letting yourself off the hook are you kind of you know is where's the the balance I suppose between self-compassion what is self-compassion why is it important and yeah what I'm describing which is kind of I don't really know what I do actually but it's it's definitely not self-compassion let's put it that way well I I think self-compassion is just giving yourself the same advice that you would give your best friend so it doesn't necessarily mean letting yourself off the hook because that's not what we do with if you think of somebody that you really care about and you're invested in their life and you want them to fly you you don't go oh it's okay you don't learn from that experience just carry on as you are you say it's okay we all make mistakes as long as you've reflected and you know you'll do it differently next time or it's okay to take a rest because that means that you've got a big week coming up and you'll be refreshed and ready to tackle that week um that's what i think self compassion is and and we find it so incredibly difficult and and part of that is because we're just wired that way from an evolutionary perspective it it makes much more sense for us to remember our mistakes as opposed to our successes remember criticism as opposed to praise because there's more to be learned there if you think about you know a cave person if they almost trod on a poisonous snake it makes sense for them to remember that and go I won't do that again because I might die and Mm. and in a modern context what that means is you can receive 99 pieces of praise and one criticism you'll remember the criticism disproportionately you'll kick yourself for things that you've done wrong or things that you feel like you might have not said in the right way and that over time can can cause you know real anxiety and kind of feed into this need to to, to almost overwork to 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 prove yourself um so i think that the key thing is is to try and take a step back from your situation and think if my very best friend in the world had this set of circumstances what advice would i give them yes you're so right that is exactly what you would do you're not going to berate them in the same way that you do yourself and i think that the feedback and the kind of praise and the mistakes thing is really really important as well because as you said, if someone you know says to you, let's say you, you ask someone for some feedback on a piece of work and they say, oh, it's great, it's brilliant, doesn't really, yeah, it's nice to receive, but it doesn't really help you. You know, if someone says to you, oh, actually, it was interesting, but this part was repetitive or, oh, actually, I didn't really think that it, it wasn't clear what you were trying to, to say or that's constructive, that's helpful. And, and so I think, yeah, one is the balance of not just taking every negative criticism or, or kind of berating yourself or, as you said, a mistake that you made or a thing that you did wrong, but kind of, I guess, seeking that and thinking, OK, well, if that's something that's that I've done, how can I avoid doing that again? Or how can I mitigate that same problem in the future? And I guess as well, giving other people praise, because, again, if something's bad, like or let's say a perfect example is like you you know, you go to a restaurant and you wait ages for the food and food's not good. The first thing often people do is complain about the service. They might tweet and be like, oh, this place is terrible. But nine times out of 10, when they go somewhere that's amazing and fantastic, 
they just leave and go, yeah. oh, that was great. But they don't do this. They don't have the same reaction, which is, oh, I'm going to tell everybody this place was great or I'm going to tweet that the place was great or I'm going to recommend it or I'm going to send an email and say, thank you so much. It was fantastic. But people, I'm sure, send, you know, emails of complaint when when things aren't good. So maybe yeah. that's a, an action as well that we can do uh, is to kind of think, yeah, take yeah. on the good, but also give the good. That's called negativity bias. And um, people do that exact thing that you described. And it's actually, there's a friend of mine called um, Sheru Izadi. Have you had her on the podcast? No. Oh, you should. She's great. Um, she's a, a habit change specialist. And um, she, she developed this thing called the kindness method, which is all about how you, um, she worked in, in frontline addiction services. So it's all about how you change a habit through self-compassion. Um, and she does this thing where she will every day send a supportive message to somebody that she admires on social media, but as a private message. And I think that's a really good habit to get into because I can't tell you, you know, as somebody, as a woman with opinions in the public eye, mm. I get piled you. on a lot, you know. <laughs> so just to have a little message in your inbox going, by the way, I think you're great. I really admire what you do can really off- offset that sometimes. <laughs> Yeah, I bet. And just to echo her, and please do, uh, yeah, intro, I'd love to have her on the podcast. But just to echo that, I do appreciate the work that you do as well. And I hope that I've told you that because, the, no, serious, the tone and the way, you know, if you don't follow Natasha on social media already, then please do. But it's so informative, but the tone is always, I don't know, it's a very difficult balance to strike, I think. And you do it very, very well. So I also appreciate your work, Natasha. Oh, thank you. And the feeling is entirely <laughs> mutual. Just giving out the praise left, right and centre. <laughs> okay, so the next thing we have to discuss is the fact that you have written another book. You have written another book. So that, firstly, congratulations. Your work thank ethic you. is just incredible. I was a little bit shocked because this book is fiction. Now, as somebody who only reads non-fiction, I was like, oh, I I was taken aback. So I'd love if you could talk to us about the new book, why you've chosen to to write a fiction book, what was that like? Tell us all about it. I've always wanted to have a go at writing a novel. It was one of my bucket list things. And when the pandemic hit and we went into lockdown, you know, the bulk of my work is visiting schools and colleges all over the UK, and they hadn't really set up for having Zoom classes at that stage. So all my work was cancelled. And I thought, if I don't do it now, if I don't sit down and write this book now, I will never do it, I might as well just cross it off the the to do list. So I felt like it was an opportunity. And I'd had the idea, the idea had been brewing for a while. And it actually originally came from I do focus groups with teenagers. And a lot of teenage girls were telling me that they wanted advice on how to navigate toxic friendships. Um, There's a new sex and relationships curriculum, which means that they get taught about coercive control in the context of romantic relationships, which is a really positive thing. But they were talking about, you know, in in the context of a platonic friendship, I don't really understand what the red lines are and I don't understand how to stand up for myself and have boundaries. And and so I wanted to write about that in a, in a fictionalised uh, context from the point of view. It's, it's from a teenage girl. Um, there are lots of other themes. So I knew that I wanted the, the main character to have mental health issues and she has an anxiety disorder. Um, and that was something that I was very sure that I wanted um, one of the themes to be. But there were other themes that emerged as I was writing it. And a big one is is privilege. So the, the, the main character is 
uh, of mixed race racial heritage but her dad is brown and her mum is white and then the the kind of toxic character is also mixed race so her dad is black and her mum is white and so it's uh, they they're in a predominantly white area which one is one of the reasons that they bond so very quickly because they they have this sense of both of them being other um and uh, the, the 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 more toxic character she wears her otherness proudly and my main character really admires that and kind of and kind of wants to learn from her and she's incredibly charismatic and um you know they get tight really quickly but looking at the dynamic between them, because um, Luella, my main character, is, um, you know, slightly lighter skinned and she's got straighter hair, um, but she doesn't know her dad. So the um, the other character, Aretha, has got this sense of who she is from her dad, who's um, from the Caribbean that kind of goes back generations. And she knows all about her heritage and, uh, you know, they're cooking Caribbean food in the house and it's really celebrated. And Luella doesn't have that. So it's it's kind of looking at the, the layers of privilege, because, again, I think that this conversation around privilege is something that has been massively oversimplified. And one of the mm-hmm. themes that emerges is that, yeah, if these two girls were walking down the street side by side, Aretha would be more racialized than Luella and people would probably be nicer to Luella or or treat her with more respect for that reason however in some ways Aretha has more privilege um so it was that was really interesting for me because I wasn't expecting to write it and then as the novel progressed I was like oh okay (laughs) this was obviously something that was in the back of my mind wow yeah it's um, wow it's so complex and you know as a mixed race woman with a white mother and a black father and just so many of the things that you were talking about there there is so much nuance of course there is there's nuance to everything in life but it sounds fascinating it sounds like you've done an incredible job of of yeah really understanding and exploring all the different layers and nuances of, of of friendships and and all of those things so wow that sounds fascinating when is the book the book's available for pre-order now it's called toxic but when is the book out it's out on the 7th of July. So if you pre-order it now, it I love doing that because it's then it turns up on your Kindle or on your doorstep and it's like a present from your past self because you often forget <laughs> that you've ordered it. Yes, exactly that. And also as from one author to another, it's also really important to support authors if you like their work and your, you know, pre-orders are really important, right? So I know that the world that we live in, you know, for better or worse, there's all these algorithms and sales projections and all these things. And before I wrote Power Hour, I had no idea about that stuff. I was just like, oh, cool. I like that person's book. It's out next month. I'll get it when I see it. And now I'm like everybody who I like their work, I pre-order, pre-order because I know how important that is as well. So yes, we'll leave yeah. links. I still in, don't in- fully understand and why it's important but it is important yes i'll give you the debrief but just like i said it's because we live in a world of algorithms so everything is being counted by some imaginary machine i don't know where um but yes it is important we'll add a link so that you can easily pre-order spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine with the weather warming up it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. All right, Natasha, let's talk about the Power Hour. 
I know you are a return guest, so I don't always dive deep into exactly what your power hour is, but I do know from following you on your social media that you are running. I feel like you're running more now than you were before. Correct me mm. if I'm wrong. So yeah, is running how, let's talk about running and do you run in the morning? Is it part of your power hour or not? So, um, I actually started running outdoors in 2017. Um, I, I used to run before, but I used to run on the treadmill in the gym because I had almost like, um, a fear of running outside. I thought that I would look stupid and that everyone would look at me. (laughs) And then I, um, I I tried it and I realized that no one cares what I'm doing and it's fine. Yeah. (laughs) So, and it's, and it's such a different experience and I, I just find it a, a better um to be outside particularly when when the sun is shining particularly if you can go to a park and you can be in nature I just find it to be a a better workout so I I started running in 2017 and I would say I maybe ran a couple of times a week Uh, but it was never um I was never really into it in the way that I am now what changed that was that um my brother um, has a diagnosis of something called Bechet's syndrome, which is a really, really rare autoimmune disease. And um, it's, it, it's difficult to explain. You, you, you kind of have an underlying uh, gene and a lot of people have it, but not everybody has Bechet's that has the gene. But for some people, it's, it's kind of triggered in their late 20s, early 30s normally. And, the, and they develop this syndrome, which... Um, means that you get kind of inflammations in different part of your parts of your body and you can become really sick with it. Um, luckily, now my brother has a, a really great care team, so he, he's managing it. But what I found was it was really difficult to explain it to people because it's quite random. Uh, like One week you can be really quite poorly and then the next week you'll be fine and there's no cure for it, but you can manage it. And it just doesn't fit the way that we understand illness and Mm. um particularly because you know all all three of my all three of us i've got two two brothers and we're all kind of tall and broad and um you know we've got tanned skin and so people always think we look really well they always go you look well and so even my brother even when he was really sick people would say but he looks so well and he just didn't fit this idea of what people thought a sick person looked like so I got really frustrated because I thought if he had any other long-term disability or illness, we would get a lot more support. And I realised it's because people just didn't understand it. So I decided to do this challenge um, for the Bechet Society um, where I ran 50 miles, not all in one go, (laughs) um, but 50 miles during the course of a month in September to raise money and awareness. And um, I spoke about it on my LBC show. So that involved doing um, about 20k a week. Um, So I went from doing, you know, a couple of runs a week to I was doing 5k four times a week. And raised about £2,000, which was great, but more than that, really, really raised awareness. But then after I completed that, I thought, I feel great. (laughs) I really wanted to kind of try and maintain that level of fitness. So that's why you see me running all over the place. I don't do 20k a week. I I run three times a week now, um, but I'm trying to to build up to doing 10k. So at the moment, I'm on sort of um, 7k, um, in one go and I'm, I'm mm-hmm. working my, my way up to doing a 10k awesome well are you gonna do you think that 10k is gonna be a race you're gonna sign up to or you're gonna build up to it and just just add it on to your in one of your weekly runs 
I tell you what, I did enjoy after I did the Beshe's challenge, I did get a medal and I've never had a medal for anything sports related before because I'm not a kind of natural athlete. So all of the medals I got at school were for things like public speaking and debating and drama and stuff like that. So when I got a medal for a, a physical activity, I was like, check me yes. out. So, so I might do a race. Yeah, well, I mean, I have lots and lots of 10K races I can recommend, of course. And I really love that you shared that, actually, that, you know, your reason for running, your how you didn't you know, necessarily think you were an athletic athlete and you've how you've you know, persevered and how great it's made you feel. Because, you know, I've had a number of runners on this show. I've had some recently had, you know, some ultra endurance marathon runners who talk about, you know, running 250 kilometers, you know, of these ultra races and these insane challenges that sound to me like they don't well they said they don't sound fun but apparently they are (laughs) but I think it's really nice for people to know that actually if you're running 2k if you're running 3k if you're running 10k whatever it is if you're enjoying it if it's a challenge for you you know we don't have to always compare ourselves to you know Mo Farah absolutely and actually something Something that I noticed really early on is I tried a couple of apps and one of the apps, every five minutes, it told you what your average speed was over the five minutes. And then then I used another app where it's actually Sarah Millican's voice on the app. And she and she just goes every five minutes. I won't try and do the accent, but she she just (laughs) goes, she, she just goes, you know, well done. You're doing amazingly. Keep up the good work. You know, you're this is champion. And I run so much faster, actually, it, because I'll have another app in the background that will just tell me, you know, how far I've run and how long it's taken me. Um, I run so much faster when on the Sarah Millican app. Um, so I've realized that there's something and I realize everyone's different. But in terms of my motivation, I don't like being kind of constantly monitored all the time and told like that. That five minutes was slower than your last five minutes. But if I have somebody being like, yes, you've got this. You can do it. I run really yeah. fast. Yeah. I love that. Well, it just also goes to show the impact of positive praise. You know, it really does, you know, especially for young people, for children. But yeah, even for us as adults, someone simply being there and saying, well done, you're doing great. You, the difference it makes when you do a race and you know, there's people all the way along going, you're amazing, well done. They're clapping. You're like, oh my gosh, like you run the whole race with a smile <laughs> on your face. You, you run faster. You've got this bounce. You've got this energy because people are giving you praise. And you're like, oh my gosh this is really hard. I'm doing this. I'm doing this really hard thing. This is great. So yeah, I love that. And also I just love how I would love to have Sarah Milligan, like basically giving me praise on a run. So I'm going to have to check that out. Well, thank you so, so much for being a return guest on the show, Natasha. I am definitely going to be pre-ordering the book and recommending it to others. And I can't thank you enough for coming back and giving us an hour of your time again. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening, everyone. And as always, have an awesome week. Stay safe. See ya. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.